the history in Sweden has been that nudging or just informing or advising has been proven to be a very efficient strategy. Basically, fair weather sailing, when, when things are going well, when everyone is on board, when you're not facing a huge crisis. And that crisis is, I think, exactly what the COVID-19 pandemic was. And that overthrew some of these relations. Hi, this is Eric Pagley in the Rocket FM studios in Stockholm, Sweden. Time now for episode 20 of Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic, the podcast with me and Mark Vandenbosch here in the studio. Good to see you again, Mark. And uh, you're fresh off of your uh, coronavirus uh, antibody test. Uh, how'd it go? Yeah, a couple of weeks ago, Sweden made possible for people to get themselves tested for both the coronavirus if they wanted to. Before, this had been a restricted testing protocol for only people that were working in the health community or had very severe symptoms. But you can also test yourself for antibodies. Now, they set this up via an app. You had to go through quite a few loops in order to, to get the proper code to book your time to get the test. And, uh, of course, the uh, IT solution crashed immediately. But eventually, they straightened things out. And I was able to get my test because... In the very first podcast that we did, some people who might have listened at that time heard that I was I was sick. Your, your sexy voice. It was as, sexier as than usual. <laughs> sexier than usual. Very raspy. Uh, and I was sick for about 12 days, and I felt I had all these symptoms. Uh, you know, a dry cough, a congestion in the chest. I get better, I get worse. I had the fever. It wouldn't let go and so on. So I was pretty convinced I had antibodies. And it turns out I do not. So you to my not, great surprise. So that was not a case of the coronavirus. And yeah, I have not uh, pursued the test uh, myself. I assume that I have not had it. Uh, just, uh, I think it was after around the time that we had the interview with Tom Britton and uh, around those, those days around that, that uh, it turned out that the uh, level of uh, immunity in uh, Stockholm was something between like 6 and 10%, uh, whereas before there was uh, projections that it should be around 40 or 50%. That we would actually achieve herd immunity at this point. Exactly. So I just said, well, if that's the case, and I, I haven't had any real symptoms of the virus, I assume I have not had it. So I haven't been that anxious to get the test, but I guess eventually I probably will just to sort of just close that loophole. Yeah, because apparently a lot of people who have been asymptomatic have had this. I have actually uh, some anecdotal evidence uh, in my workplace where some of my colleagues did get tested just to check it out. They weren't sure. And some of them did show antibodies, even though they weren't particularly sick. So you don't know. There's however one caveat, which is the tests that are given, these are supposed to be very reliable from the perspective of a positive response. In other words, if you test positive and show that you have had antibodies, then it's over 99%, I think, reliable that that response is accurate. However, false negatives can occur. So in my case, for example, I'm still a little paranoid. Uh, but I feel that perhaps even though the test was negative, I, I still have antibodies in my system. We, that's, yeah, that's something that can happen. But here in Sweden, the, the virus is still spreading. There's still a, a consistent uh, death toll every day. Unfortunately, yeah, it's uh, 30, 40, 50, 60. The curve still seems to be softening for the most part, if you look to the country as a whole, which, which is good. But still many restrictions in place, which is, of course, wise. However, some of these restrictions don't always make a lot of sense. There seems to be a double standard standard that is applied to how uh, the state and the authorities here uh, enforce these restrictions. So, for example, one of the controversies right now, there's a few uh, very popular amusement parks in Sweden. There's one here in Stockholm called Grönalund. There's also Lisa Bär in, in Gothenburg. 
And they're not allowed to open because uh, they trigger large gatherings of crowds, which makes sense. However, other types of places, such as zoos, is a very large zoo called Kolmorden, for example, two, three hours south of Stockholm, very nice place, but quite big, that usually accommodates thousands of visitors a day. They're allowed to proceed. It and, doesn't make sense. And they also have a, an amusement park component to it as well. It's also a place with roller coasters and things like that. True, though I suspect that part of the, uh, the attraction is probably closed, but I don't know. But it probably means it's guaranteed to be crowded there because it, no place else is open. There's no place else to go. No, certainly a lot of inconsistencies when it comes to this uh, virus and its management. Sweden, of course, is one story among, um, well, many countries in the world that are having their own experiences with the coronavirus. And, Mark, uh, some of the countries that we had on our radar early on seems like the things yeah. have really gotten uh, quite uh, bad, especially in many of the developing countries that we feared uh, would uh, finally get hit, finally are getting hit. We talked, I think, uh, in our second or third podcast about the international dimensions of corona and how we felt that there was a lot of underreporting going on in some of these developing country settings. And also that uh, the wave perhaps had not gotten there. And we specifically uh, spoke about uh, Bangladesh, India, and things have gotten really bad there. Some of the hospitals in India are being overwhelmed. And we also spoke about Brazil. And now this is obviously now a huge hotspot. There have been over 60,000 fatalities, documented fatalities in Brazil, which, of course, the real numbers are probably far higher. And uh, we saw this coming. I don't like being right. I mean, I'm sure we're not the only ones who saw this coming. But some of the leaders of, of these uh, countries were sort of underplaying it early on and even declared victory uh, prematurely. And uh, now they're getting hit real hard. It's, uh, it's really tough to see. I mean, India and Brazil are two uh, good comparisons, uh, both uh, with authoritarian governments. But India did do a, a pretty uh, substantial lockdown for pretty early on as well. Uh, Brazil did not, but uh, both countries, I guess Brazil is much worse hit at this point. But... Sure, India is in better shape, actually, absolutely. But they don't have the uh, medical care infrastructure really required to, to deal with this. And that may be one of the reasons why they're downplaying the numbers, because if everybody who actually had a cough and felt that they had corona showed up at a hospital, obviously it would be a total collapse of the system. I should also mention that uh, coming up uh, on this episode, our expert guest today is uh, John Pierre, professor of political science at the uh, University of Gothenburg. He's uh, recently uh, published an article called Nudges Against Pandemics, Sweden's COVID-19 Containment Strategy in Perspective. So we'll get uh, into some real depth on uh, how Sweden has managed this crisis a little bit uh, later on. This idea of nudges, I think, is pretty interesting as well. This idea that Sweden has not used a very coercive uh, lockdown-based strategy, a bunch of instructions from the government, recommendations, uh, rules, I guess, um, enforced um, to some extent and also not enforced to some extent. So I think it'll be very interesting to hear uh, Professor uh, Pierre's perspective on this. It's more of a strategy of helpful suggestions and hints. This uh, leads to, to interpretation. Going away from the Swedish perspective a little bit, one of the things that is becoming far apparent now is that EU has ultimately shown to be more successful in mitigating the strategy than the United States. Things looked very different two, three months ago. And if you look at the curves, uh, we're doing a lot more testing. So the number of people that are testing positive, of course, that's going up. And you could definitely relate that to the fact that we're testing far more. So that's sort of a misleading number. However, the fatality rate is it is what it is. And there you see a great divergence now between Europe and the United States, where the United States fatality curve is starting to curl back up. And Europe so far has been very successful in softening the curve where it's now flattening quite a bit, which is nice to see. But this has repercussions in terms of the freedom of travel for people, both for Europeans and the United States. And currently, American uh, tourists are not very welcome anywhere in the world. 
No, they are not, and uh, neither are Swedes, actually. I was going to get to that. Uh, Sweden is pretty um, pretty limited in the countries it will take us, and um, New York Times has even uh, described Sweden as a, a bit of a pariah state, which I thought was a quite a, quite a strong uh, phrasing of, of the situation in Sweden. But it is kind of true that uh, people don't really want Swedes uh, crossing their borders at this point. Even our Nordic uh, siblings, you could say, Norway, Denmark, Finland, do not want us there. It leads to some interesting anecdotes. I have a colleague, for example, from work, who a number of months ago rented with a friend a house outside of Gothenburg for the summer, since we're not allowed to travel. And uh, they were going to get together in the month of July with their families. But when they rented the house, they had failed to notice a tiny detail, that the house was actually on the wrong side of the border, and it was in Norway, because <laughs> uh, Norway is quite close to Gothenburg. So they can't go. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> They're being locked out. Okay, not very neighborly on the, on the side of the, the Norwegian border. No, and, uh, and you know, we'll see uh, how this develops over time. But before Sweden was the land where we had uh, polar bears walking the streets in Stockholm, there was the bikini uh, Swedish team, and uh, Ingemar Bergman as uh, this tragic uh, movie uh, director. Uh, but now the Swedish brand is <laughs> Corona. <laughs> Well, this this will add another nuance to the whole perception of Sweden and, and the, the sort of the interpretation of Swedish culture. The Bergman uh, comparison is in some ways uh, an interesting one. We'll see how this reflects on the sort of the Swedish psyche, the Swedish relationship with with mortality and death. It's something actually that was talked a bit about on uh, one of our previous episodes with uh, Giuliano Di Baldessare when he talks about some of these cultural aspects on, on the uh, outlook on mortality in, in places like Italy versus here in Sweden. I think I think these are these are the kind of things that we can reflect upon in the in the years ahead. Ahead. You know, even if you extend this even further, I wonder if it's going to have economic repercussions on the corporate side of things. I mean, think of a company like IKEA. As you know, the Chinese tried to claim that the resurgence of corona was linked to Norwegian salmon, right? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't put it past some people to stop buying IKEA goods because they'll be concerned that somehow they'll get you know, infected by corona because it's a Swedish brand, even though most of the furniture is made in other countries. But, you know, it's a complex it, might situation. Have about, it might have an impact. I, I would not rule it out. Certainly a lot more material to get to uh, over the course of this summer with uh, this unfolding situation. The United States getting worse. Sweden stabilizing, but not uh, certainly not out of the woods yet. And all these other uh, second order uh, issues that uh, will uh, be related to the coronavirus pandemic. And this is still what we assume is the first wave, right? Even though it seems like a bit of a kind of a mini second wave, kind of resurgence that's come about the last few weeks or so. No, I think uh, this fall will be very interesting. Uh, We hope that we've learned a lot from what's taken place up to date so that we're equipped to, to handle a resurgence but we're in for the long run and it's all hinging, I think, on this uh, vaccine that hundreds of companies are actually working hard to to develop. And uh, when we have the vaccine in place, can things maybe go back to some semblance of normalcy until the next one? Because we, as Professor Bjorn Olson said on this very show several weeks ago, uh, this is uh, likely to be the first of many waves of pandemics coming up in the near future. So let's now move into the uh, part of the uh, show where we do an interview with an expert, and that's uh, John pierre from Gothenburg University, and his analysis of the Swedish response to the coronavirus crisis here on Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. Nudges against pandemics, Sweden's COVID-19 containment strategy in perspective. Now, the word nudge is uh, quite an unusual uh, word, uh, particularly in uh, something as serious as a major crisis. Um, but do you think that word, I guess it sums up to some extent how Sweden's strategy kind of uh, was based? Yeah, I think so, uh, both on a micro level and on a macro level. 
uh, on the micro level, the basic idea was to to give advice and note that there were not strict rules. They were advice, they were recommendations on social behavior to maintain social distance, to wash your hands, and so on and so forth, to avoid crowds, to stay at home if you can, and so on and so forth. But all of that was was cast as advice and recommendations. On the more macro level, uh, nudges, I, I thought it would, it would be a neat concept to capture the institutional relations that are typical to the Swedish political administrative system, where, as I outlined in the article, uh, it's, a, it's a decentralized system bordering on almost fragmented, very autonomous executive agencies and also highly autonomous regions and local governments. So in order to overcome those constitutional barriers for central government to really impose its will on agencies or regions, or local governments. They use information, they use forecasting, they use models, they use informal networks, they use professional communities, and so on and so forth. And the thing is that both of the micro and the macro level, the history in Sweden has been that nudging or just informing or advising has been proven to be a very efficient strategy. I think that has played out mainly basically fair weather sailing, when, when things are going well when everyone is on board, when you're not facing a huge crisis of some kind. And that crisis is, I think, exactly what the COVID-19 pandemic was. And that overthrew some of these relations. And as we're now heading into the season when there is a commission appointed to evaluate the government's performance uh, on the crisis, I think this is going to be one of the main issues. Fairweather sailing, that's a, it's a good uh, metaphor for someone speaking to us from an island uh, this afternoon uh, off the coast of the west coast of Sweden. <laughs> and, and, uh, John, um, so I mean, this perhaps would be a, a, almost a later question or a last question, but um, given this, this decentralized, almost fragmented uh, system that, uh, that you're describing here, was this the only possible Swedish response given the system or could things have been done differently given these circumstances? I think that's a really great question. Uh, what were the options on the table, so to speak? There are probably two factors. One is what in Swedish will be called ansvarsprincipen, the foundation of crisis management in Sweden. And this principle, the principle of responsibility, states that if you are in charge of a certain policy sector or a certain area of public service in normal times, uh, you are to remain responsible for that in times of crisis. That principle basically comes out as a powerful argument against altering institutional relations as soon as we head into a more crisis-like situation. And secondly, if you go through the crisis management literature, they tend to depart from a similar notion, saying that you should avoid creating new hierarchies or new patterns of control as soon as you head into a crisis. The best thing is to maintain the institutional arrangements that you have when things are going well and not impose a new regime when there is a crisis, because that means that the whole system will first have to adapt to the new regime before it can actually attack the crisis. Both of these factors, I think, uh, were powerful obstacles against creating a new regime. The only exception I can see to this pattern is that if you look at how the how hospitals work or the whole medical sector, they have a system of or a, a sort of a hierarchy of emergencies. So it's like, you know, going from sort of DEFCON 5 to DEFCON 1. That's the only place I can think where there is a clear preparedness for what do we do when there is a crisis. Other than that, the system has been almost reluctant to address the issue of how do we deal with crisis. Does that make sense? It does. But do you mean that from a... um from a prestige standpoint, or is there something sort of structural in the Swedish system that uh, resists change? 
I think it is structural. There is a a concept in vogue right now, and saying that we're we're sort of peace damaged. Sweden is a very peace damaged country. We were never, I mean, we haven't been exposed to war for 200 years. We're living in a in what we think is a very controlled environment and a very predictable environment. When I talk to some of my colleagues uh, who come from countries where there have been wars, I mean, they will they will start prepping. They always prep. You know, they have the basement full of you know tins with food and water and alternative heating systems and, and everything. And Swedes don't have that. This is what the peace damage would look like. I think we're also uh, kind of entering in a uh, discussion on culture at this point, uh, which was, was one of the uh, the aspects of your article as well, uh, John, that uh, I thought was very interesting. Could you perhaps talk a bit about that, about how um, mm-hmm. the social norms and, and, and the culture of Sweden led to the, the kind of um, policies with sort of the policymakers and the and the, uh, and the uh, epidemiologists advising on what to do. They did this based on knowing Sweden, the way Swedes behave, the way Swedes think, and not a very sort of a top-down, coercive uh, civil society. Could you perhaps talk about mm-hmm. that and also the idea of trust, which uh, other scholars have pointed to as, as one of the factors behind the Swedish response? I think that much much of the nudging works well in a society which is culturally very homogenous. And one thing that has become uh, increasingly apparent, I guess, I think during the crisis, is that Sweden is now more heterogeneous than it was, say, oh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And that means that there are now other cultures, there are other social norms, there are other perceptions of government in Sweden than we had you know, just a few decades ago. And that means that many of, of, of the sort of social signaling that was very efficient previously is less so today. In addition to that, there is also the question of just being sufficiently... Uh, proficient in Swedish to understand signals. And there may be ethnic communities that are less prone to do so. And so people uh, in, I think particularly in some of the Stockholm suburbs, had received very little information in their home language. So they they had a very limited idea of what was happening and uh, what precautions they should take. Do you think that this crisis will be so fundamental that it will lead to some sort of systemic change, that this idea that a system that works really well in fair weather sailing uh, is not appropriate for major crises, which do happen, as we now know, um, do you think this will lead to any sort of deeper structural changes here? I'm not so sure. Uh, (laughs) And there's a number of reasons for that. One major reason why the current system is so popular among the political leaders is that this institutional arrangement actually protects them from being accountable. So that if an agency should commit any sort of major errors, major mistakes in the implementation of a policy, that accountability will not automatically sort of go up to the political level. Same thing with the regions and the local governments, that their autonomy is also indirectly a way of protecting national politicians from being accountable. And I think this is what we are seeing very, very clearly in the present case. Thirdly, and this is a more complicated argument, there's a, lot, there's a lot of virtue to the system too. I did an interview with an official in the public health agency. Uh, this was just before the crisis hit Sweden. And I asked the official I, what she saw as the biggest challenge in implementing national policy. This was about antimicrobial resistance. And the immediate response I got was that, well, uh, we have autonomous regions and we have autonomous local governments in Sweden. And that makes it very difficult for the agency to just give them strict orders on what to do. And then we went on and we talked about something else. And then I came back 10 minutes later and I said, 
you know, if we look at how Sweden has been dealing with the problem of antimicrobial resistance, we can see that Sweden comes out as, you know, one of the real success stories. Why is that, do you think? And the response I had was that, well, uh, I would put it down to we have a great relationship with the regions and with the local governments. So, so my next question then was that, okay, so what are you saying here? Are you saying that a soft coordination system, a nudging system, a system where you have to sit down and talk, you need to get everyone on board before you launch a policy, uh, is more efficient than one where you have a more strict sort of command and control? And and the response I had was that, was that yes, so it works better. Uh, and to me, this this just echoed the. There's a classic paper written by an American sociologist called uh, called Granovetter, and it's called the strength of weak ties. Uh, and he basically argues that if you have arrangements that are negotiated uh, and sort of they represent some sort of compromise in a network, those systems are more durable and stronger than if you have agency X uh, giving orders to regions saying that. Here is what you should do. They may comply, but they will. Some will do that fairly reluctantly. Uh, but if they have had an input on the policy before they are asked to implement it, then you will get a better compliance. So you get a better compliance by having less less formal authority. And so maybe that's part of the explanation that Sweden is slow because if we're to implement policy, we have to sit down with affected institutions, with stakeholders, and so on and so forth, before we can start launching the policy. That means that once we start launching the policy, everyone is on board. And so compliance is late, but very efficient. So as you're describing it here, John, it seems like the system is well-structured for top-level, national-level politicians to avoid blame. Um, But of course, uh, in any crisis, uh, blame games are inevitable. And the one person that will, of course, attract all the the lightning of, of this crisis, or, or much of it at least, uh, and already has been to this uh, to this point, is the state epidemiologist uh, Anders Tegnell. He was on Swedish national radio recently, the uh, the summer talk, which is a long Swedish tradition, <coughs> where he, he um, made some some pretty interesting um, uh, statements that weren't perhaps weren't uh, trumpeted so much, but they were kind of more like buried leads in his talk. Could you perhaps talk a bit about that and what that might uh, say about the Swedish response? But not only that, but also how this was um, this crisis was being um, perceived internationally at an early stage. I thought his talk was really illuminating, and he was very candid about uh, how he and his colleagues in the public health agency had assessed the crises and uh, what they believed to be the best way forward. And there were several interesting points. I think that one of the points was that he sort of implied that he was really surprised when the other European countries started locking down uh, aggressively as soon as the crisis uh, hit Europe. Almost in passing, he said that uh, I was really surprised uh, we had talked about this and this is not the pattern that we had agreed upon. So there was some Uh, sort of agreement amongst other state epidemiologists in Europe that uh, perhaps was not followed. Sweden became like the only country that um, somehow kind of missed the memo that <laughs> the old plan is, is scrapped and that we're uh, now uh, we're not going to lock down and forget about what we said before. Well, I wouldn't call it necessarily an agreement, uh, but maybe that rather you might call it some sort of professional consensus that this is probably the best strategy. I think another really interesting question here is, you know, what was his analysis and what was the public health agency's analysis here? The Swedish community of epidemiologists has been uh, deeply divided on these issues. And there's a large number of uh, Tegnell's colleagues who have been very critical 
I mean, some have argued, for instance, that maybe the best thing would have been to lock down very early for six or eight weeks uh, and just to find out exactly what this virus is all about. How does this virus behave? Once that research had been completed, then that would be a good foundation for outlining a policy to contain that pandemic. Uh, and that, I think, was another point that that came out in, in his talk, that there was an assumption that this virus was, was the behavior of the coronavirus was not significantly different from, say, the H1N1 or a, a regular flu virus. Uh, and that, I think, that was the standpoint that then guided how they designed the containment strategy. And then, of course, we realized that the, the coronavirus, the behavior of that virus, differed uh, in many ways. I mean, it seems like one of the main stories of this uh, crisis uh, in, in the Swedish context has been this um, reluctance to change from this original strategy when more evidence uh, came out and more deaths piled up and other countries were approaching this in extremely different ways. The, the Sweden sort of stuck to its guns. It uh, maintained this mm-hmm. this uh, sort of light-touch strategy. I mean, would you say there was some some sort of overconfidence in this, in the Swedish strategy amongst these, these elites, um, perhaps some sort of uh, stubbornness? Or is this a, a long-term strategy they describe it as being more sustainable in the long run than, than other countries? Um, where would you sort of put this on the, on the spectrum of, of the sort of the Swedish thinking amongst uh, these uh, high-level decision-makers. Anderson now said fairly early on that he had a very sort of open mind and he said that, okay, this is what we're doing now and uh, if need be, then uh, we have, you know, we have levers to pull, we have taps to open, we have taps to close, so we can make the micro-level adjustments along the way. Uh, and to some extent they did, but they, they stuck to the original overall sort of paradigm of not locking down. I wouldn't call it stubbornness. The more positive spin would be to call it consistency. Two of the uh, aspects of this crisis that have been heavily criticized uh, here in Sweden and elsewhere as well, not just criticized, but maybe questioned and uh, debated, are the uh, the issues of uh, testing, which has been um, not that widespread here in Sweden, and also uh, wearing masks, which Swedish authorities seem to have been quite ambivalent about. Uh, what do these two aspects of the crisis uh, say about the Swedish strategy and the sort of the Swedish approach to dealing with the crisis, in your view? Testing has has been a problem, and I think that part of the reason why testing has been so problematic is that it has fallen between the stools here, between what the national public health agencies should do and what the regions should do. And so there has been a bit of sort of you know, passing the buck a bit here. That region said that well, we can do it, but you would have to, you would have to fund that. And so that ball was sort of tossed back and forth, back and forth several times before. And I'm not sure exactly when that was, when the government said, okay, so we will fund this if you do it right. And getting to that agreement took some time. With regards to the masks, that has played out very differently in different countries. I mean, in the U.S., it's become a, a big political issue. I'm still surprised when I'm walking around here that there are so extremely few people you see wearing masks. I find it interesting to see that while we all subscribe to the idea of social distancing, and many people are actually quite good at it. As soon as you walk into a store or as soon as you walk into a, to a restaurant, uh, I find almost daily examples of where social distancing is just forgotten. Yeah, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, the Swedish uh, response has kind of uh, rested upon the idea that, that Swedes will follow these, these basic guidelines. But uh, 
as you observed and many others, uh, that that's not really been the case in, in many instances, uh, most of the time, I would say, and also the thing about wearing masks. Uh, in two very different political cultures, uh, the U.S. and Sweden, there's this resistance to wearing masks, as you say. I mean, I, I've got to take a train ride today for about an hour, and I'm, I'm thinking, should I wear a mask, or are people going to treat me mm-hmm. like, like an alien? I mean, it's kind of it's kind of an unclear situation, and it's coming from two very different points of, of political um, authorities, whether from the United States and the criticism Trump has gotten for suggesting not to wear a mask or, or just being indifferent to it. But here in Sweden, where it's been, yeah, very ambivalent uh, in terms of guidance we're getting from the authorities here. Rounding things off a bit, in just terms of uh, where we go from here uh, with the uh, the Swedish situation, there'll be accountability processes and everything else. And in terms of time, in terms of evaluating, and you point this out in your article very clearly, you make some preliminary conclusions, but probably not until the end of next year will, will we be able to uh, evaluate uh, the Swedish response and the sort of make an international comparison. But at this point, uh, what would you say? I mean, has, would you deem this uh, crisis uh, response in Sweden to have been a failure based on, on the numbers? Or is it truly just too early to say? Uh... Yeah, it is. I think it is It is very difficult to make an evaluation. And uh, partly because I think there are, there are still a large number of unknowns here. And partly because of time. We don't know exactly when we're out of the woods. And we can't really make a full-scale assessment until we are. If you just take the very simple and almost sort of seductively easy comparison with, say, Denmark, Norway, and Finland, we can see that Sweden has, I mean, Sweden's death toll is just staggering. And so, to that extent, yes, it has been much less of a success uh, than in our sort of neighboring countries. Is this likely to even out? I mean, that has been the the argument for not locking down. That if you take if you take the hit early on in the long run, and when we get to the end of the road of this pandemic, uh, we should have almost equal death tolls in sort of comparable countries. I can't really see that happening. I mean, for that to happen, there would have to be enormous spikes in the death toll in Denmark, Norway, and Finland, for instance. Uh, and I really can't see that happen. The questions then are, you know, was the strategy flawed? Or is this something which has more to do with, with the capacity of the healthcare system and the elderly care system to step up. I think that is probably where where we will come down and take a very, very critical look at this. Why is it that we have so limited medical staff in the in the nursing homes, for instance? What are the systemic modifications that we can do so that we will not have the same outcome when the next pandemic? Just finally, in terms of uh, domestic politics here in Sweden, uh, the uh, the government uh, received an enormous amount of support uh, early on and for quite a bit uh, into this crisis. The uh, prime minister, his party, uh, and just generally the Swedish system w- w- received uh, just overwhelming support. But that seems to be eroding now as uh, people are starting to think that maybe this wasn't perhaps the best way to approach this crisis. Where do you see the, the domestic policy, uh, domestic politics playing out uh, in the weeks and months ahead? Well, that will be a very interesting process to see exactly you know who will be held to account uh, i mean despite the fact that the institutional arrangements are such that it is difficult for government to be accountable for what happens in the agencies uh, when you get to an issue of this magnitude then uh, it becomes clear that government will be accountable but there should also be extensive accountability uh, on the regional and the local levels of the political system because that is where most of the execution of the policies uh, took place, and they were clearly not equipped and they were not prepared. 
for this kind of crisis. Uh, will this play into the next election? Uh, I'm sure it will. I, I would be I would be really surprised if it didn't. But I'm not sure about ex- the exact nature of that debate. Would it make sense to hold the prime minister accountable for what happens at the regional or local levels? I would say no. It really doesn't make sense, you know, unless you have a systemic problem, saying that the system is very poorly designed, and so you should have redesigned the system, which is which is a very far-fetched argument, I think. So that'll be interesting to follow. Indeed, it will, and of course, a lot of uncertainty uh, politically, and also just in terms of the. Uh, development of this uh, pandemic, which is still far from over. But I think we've learned a lot from uh, from uh, this uh, past uh, four or five months here in Sweden and learned a lot from speaking to you, uh, Professor John Pierre. Thank you very much for joining us here on Corona Crisis, Once Upon a Pandemic. Thanks for having me, Eric.